The Big Light presents. I'm a Scottish guy from a housing scheme in Scotland, and I've never allowed that to define me or hold me back. Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and my guest is author and broadcaster Stuart Cosgrove. Stuart talks about growing up in Perth before setting off for university, which saw him study in both England and America, including a stint at Harvard University, before embarking on an illustrious and fascinating career in the media, spanning four decades and still going strong. On top of that, you'll hear about his links to music megastar Beyoncé, his involvement in the Great Train Robbery and the influence that he's had in UK and Scottish media across multiple formats. I'm delighted to have joined the Big Light Network and to be a part of something bigger that's focused on cultivating original and unique Scottish content. I'm in great company and I'm excited for what's ahead. If you want to hear the story so far on Blethered and why I've decided to join the Big Light, check out episode zero and for more information visit thebiglight.com Final word if you want access to exclusive shows additional content and some bonus perks the link to the Blether Patreon page is in the episode notes Cheers I'm delighted to be joined by Stuart Cosgrove somebody I've wanted to speak to since I started out Stuart thanks very much for your time Thank you now, most people will know you in one way or another in various media capacities, but let's go back to your early life, first of all, and get a sense of where you came from. So, growing up in Perth in the 50s and 60s, obviously a very different time from now. What are your abiding memories from that time period? Well, I, I grew up in uh, Perth, as you say, and that's pretty much home to me. That's where I always reflect back on about my upbringing and my young days. And if you go back to uh, when I was born and raised, my mother and father had met each other during the war and had just returned home to Perth after their marriage and were effectively looking for their first home. To begin with, uh, they lived with my granny May in, in Muirton, which is one of the old housing schemes in Perth, right next to St. Johnson's old ground. And I know my mother struggled for the first two years. I mean, she couldn't understand a single word my granny May said to her. She was quite lonely. She felt kind of like she wasn't really understanding the language that well. She'd come up from the north of England. Uh, but sooner or later, they, they began to... Um, you know, bond and uh, enjoy life. And one of the things my mum told me, actually just before she passed away, she told me that she was lucky to have arrived in Perth uh, at a time, this would be about 47, 48, when the Perth Panthers, the ice hockey team, were the British champions and and, and actually won the World Cup for uh, club uh, ice hockey and she would go home and away to see the Perth team playing ice hockey down to Nottingham along to Paisley to Ayr to all the big kind of ice hockey hotspots of that time then they got their first home which was a prefab uh, in uh, Hillyland in Perth now prefabs at the time were the prefabricated box houses that were built in order to accommodate growing families after the war. They were meant to be makeshift. They were meant to only be around for five or six years, but many people lived in them for almost half a lifetime. Uh, we, we left our prefab when I was about five or six, 
and moved up to uh, Latham, which was a new council scheme being built um, on the hill just up from us. And uh, that was pretty much where I've kind of grown up. And to these days, it's Latham, the scheme I grew up in, that's probably closest to my heart in terms of memories. I know hundreds and hundreds of families of different generations, of people from different walks of life that have grown up in that scheme. It's a remarkable story in its own right as a scheme in terms of all the various different people in life that have have, have lived there and grown up there. Uh, and of course... Um, I used to be a member of the wee teams that cut about there, uh, you know, the crazy young saints, the young Letham team, all of that. And that's where I first fell in love with soul music. Great place. It's home. It'll always be home. Even when they nail me into a coffin, it'll be Letham I call home. So Johnston Football Club forms a large part of your identity. And I laugh when people contact you and offer yeah. balls. Yeah, you're a St. Johnston fan, but who do you really support? We are a big fan of the Saints, aren't you? Yeah, well, absolutely. There, you know, people say to you, who do you really support? Like, well, actually, you know, what would be so difficult for a guy from Perth to support the football club that he could see out his window uh, when he was home at night? I support St. Johnson because I'm from Perth. They're the local team. I love them to death. They've been great, great uh, club to support over the years. The highs and the lows and over the last 20 years, highs beyond my wildest dreams when I was a kid growing up. Absolutely fantastic. And many, many fond memories of, of of the of the club and the team and the players that have played for us. So yeah, they're they're a very big love in my life. It's a straightforward, straight fight um between it's like Muhammad Ali and Sonny Liston for me, St. Johnson and Soul Music. They're the two big ones that are always fighting for attention in my life. We will come on to soul music, but in terms of your education, so you're renowned for having an encyclopedic knowledge of almost everything, and your educational record definitely reflects that. So you studied at the University of Hull, but yep. I'm really interested in the fact that you were at Harvard in the Wharton Business School to study for a PhD. Yes, I, I, I've got, um, I think, six different degrees. Um and some of them are honorary, some of them are, are earned, and, and I went and studied them. Um, so, yeah, I graduated from Hull University. I won a major Scottish studentship to do my PhD in America. I went to a place called Howard, which is the African-American university. I then went to George Mason University, which is in North Virginia State, and then I completed my PhD. That was at King's College in London, and when I completed my PhD, um, I, I, I was still at the time working at the NME, or had just started working at the NME, and then gradually over time worked with other newspapers and eventually moved to Channel 4. Channel 4 sent me to um, Harvard to become uh, an exceptional management training program at the John uh, F. Kennedy Center of Governance. So I went there and subsequently as I moved up the kind of managerial um, uh, ladder at Channel 4, I ended up going to the Wharton Business School at the University of Pennsylvania. So it's yeah, quite a kind of long list of various things. And my original university at Hull got in touch with me last week offering me um, an honorary degree uh, in letters for the University of Hull, which I was meant to be going to pick up at the 
uh, ceremony in, in July, but it's now been cancelled because of lockdown. But I think I'll be honoured in January of next year. And that's an honorary degree, although I've actually got a real one from the same university. So, uh, yeah, it is a pretty... I look at it sometimes and I think, wow, that's a lot for a wee guy. Um, but, yeah, I've been uh, lucky. But you know what? In education... A study. I've got a real kind of capacity to want to learn. And I believe in the concept very much, Sean, of the concept of lifelong learning, of that you never know. You never know enough. There's always more to know. I've definitely got this thing. It's a big dream when people say to you, uh, do you want to be buried or cremated? I always think, you know what, I wouldn't mind being buried because I'd quite like to talk to the undertaker about embalming. How does it work? What fluids do you need? How long do you need to be wrapped up? You know, I still want to uh, be learning at the point that I'm already dead. So uh, lifelong learning matters a lot to me. And I'm a great believer in knowledge and argument and debate and discourse. Uh, and you're never, ever too old to learn. Some notable alumni of the Wharton Business School, by the way, Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, and Stuart Cosgrove. So no bad company to be in. Funnily enough, you studied at the John F. Kennedy School of Governance last week. I didn't know anything about it, and now I know two people connected to it, because I've got a pal in America who's just been accepted to study there. Oh, brilliant. Well done. Yeah, it's a great programme, actually. Really good fun, you know. So what were your plans for yourself? I mean, where did you want your degree to take you? Because it was drama and English you were studying at Hull. Yes. What are you yeah. setting out to achieve for yourself? Because, you know, obviously the world's a smaller place back then and your knowledge of what's out there has got to be slightly limited. So like, what's the path that you are trying to create? Yeah. Okay, so, so so two things that are worth keeping in mind there, Sean. Firstly, wind back the clock. We're now so... We now live in an era, and I think brilliantly, where a university is open to virtually everyone who has the capacity to want to go and to learn. And it was very common now uh, for us to have degrees in things like drama, media studies, film studies, fashion, photography, all of these areas of the creative industries are now taught uh, across many uh, establishments in Scotland. Going back to my day, there was no university studying drama in Scotland. You could do a half degree, I think, maybe at Glasgow at the time, but certainly not um, uh, a full degree. And I know that my mum didn't want me to go to, I had I'd achieved quite a lot of local youth theatre. I was quite a visible, visible kind of performer there. And um, my mum my hadn't wanted me to go to, to be an actor, to do drama training. So she said to me, you know, I think you should get a degree because even if the everything falls apart in what was what's now called the creative industries you've got a degree you could join the civil service get a job in insurance accountancy whatever so i ended up going for a degree in drama and the nearest place to perth that you could do a degree in drama was hull university in the east coast of england uh, and it had a phenomenally brilliant uh, studio theater and training program there and it ended up to be a great experience in my life i was very lucky i went there as a 17 year old so i was already too young to go in the union bar because the students union had a cap at 18 was when you could drink uh, but you know i'd been drinking in person so 15 so i just bringed in there anyway i was not bothered too much you know <laughs> so was your decision to go there um, tied in with the fact that you've got the northern soul music scene like did that influence it 
that was a facet of it because I was already, I'd been in what you might call the origins of kind of the uh, Motown soul and Northern soul scene from age about 15, 16 onwards. So taking a decision to go to Hull helped that because it was uh, in the north of England where the epicenters of the main clubs were at this time. But when I arrived there, the year I arrived there, uh, I met uh, a girlfriend of mine, uh, Pat Wall, who was a girl from Rochdale, and she was a, a kind of skinhead mod, and she had been to the Twisted Wheel in Manchester and the Torch at Stoke-on-Trent. And so we agreed together that we were going to start going regularly to the all-nighters, which are more pure northern soul rather than pop soul or Motown. Uh, and, yeah, being at Hull really, really helped that. And then eventually when I graduated at Hull, I started off actually doing my PhD at Manchester, but for various reasons, the quality of the library at Hull was better. Um, so I returned to Hull to do my PhD for a bit as well. So in life, there seems to be certain things that happen to you. You think that's quite unbelievable, almost a wee bit like Forrest Gump. You know where all these things are happening. He doesn't realise he's in the middle of some significant event. Yeah. So there's a couple I'd like to touch on. One is when you were at uni, and this will be relevant to Scottish football fans, you played against Charles Green at football. I did, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Life is a bowl of cherries. (laughs) Charles Green, yeah. for anybody who's not aware, I suppose you could call him many things, but he's he's yeah. very well known as being a, an ex-director or owner of Rangers Football Club. The one thing, he, there's lots you can say about Charles Green, but one thing you can't criticise for him, he was a decent, decent footballer at a decent level as well. The circumstances of playing against him were, were bonkers, really, because we had at the university, this would be my second, possibly even my third year at university, we had a player who played at the university first team, and I was kind of in the first and second team at university, dropping in and out. I played a lot of football at college level, um, and also for my hall of residence, which was Needler. So I jumped between those different levels we were in university. And the guy who was the absolute standout player of the era, an unbelievably gifted player, was um, a, a guy from London from an Irish family, and his name was Tony Galvin. Uh, uh, Tony Galvin. And he was already, when he arrived at Hull, was already a great, great footballer. Uh, by the time he was in second year, a lot of senior teams were scouting him. Uh, but the team that offered him the best kind of deal to allow him to finish his degree. He was studying Russian studies. And the the, the, the team that allowed him to finish his degree uh, were called Ghoul Town. Ghoul Town. It's a small town, maybe about 15, 20, 30 miles from Hull. Um, and they had managed to... They were effectively a, a development team for Tottenham Hotspur, where he eventually ended up and became a very successful first-team player for Spurs and played for the Republic of Ireland over uh, numerous, numerous years. And Tony, uh, as part of the deal, wanted our ramshackle team of students to get a gig out of it, basically. And Ghoul accepted that we would play two friendlies, one at home and one away against them. And the one away was at Ghoul's own Ghoul Town small stadium. Some of their fans, hardcore fans, would turn up, pay some money, and we'd get the dough. That was the the deal. I get into the, the ground and I'm playing there, and I was playing, for some reason or another, I was playing as a sweeper or a centre back. And it was only actually quite recently that I looked back at the team sheet, and there on the team sheet was C. Green, 
And I just remember this guy all the way through the game, talking in my ear, shouting, claiming everything, bullying me, elbowing me. I mean, he really, really took me apart. And I'd now realise after reading his uh, biography that that was the great Charles Green, one-time owner of Rangers FC, or whatever they were called at that time. Brilliant. The, uh, another one I'd quite like to touch on and that I think people will find interesting, uh, and I've heard you speaking about this before, so on off the ball. So you were a young boy coming back to Scotland from England on a train, uh, and the train stopped in the track and you were stuck for a number of hours. I'll let you explain what that transpired to be. Yeah, my father had died in a, a car crash and we were convalescing. We'd actually had a week's holiday in air, courtesy of the... Uh, trade union that he had been a member of Um, and then my mother who was from the North England wanted to go into her family so she was a single mother wanted to take the kids off to the seaside um, and see her family we ended up going to the Cumbria coast to Whitehaven where my mother had been born on the way back you have to change trains and get on a train at Carlisle that will bring you up the road through Larbit up to Perth uh, and on the way all up to Inverness so uh, we were getting on this train going north at Carlisle and we could only have been, you know, a bit out of Carlisle station and the train stopped. But you know when a train stops and it doesn't feel like it's broken down? So people were looking out the window, they're looking at the signalling, they're shouting to guards, they're trying to get a, a perspective if there's work on the line. Nothing was moving and it never moved for hours and hours. And I was sitting there and then somebody passed down the train, gossip come down the train. Oh, there's been a big robbery, a train robbery. They've robbed the train, they said. And we thought they'd robbed the train that we were on, but we were on the other line going north. And the train that they'd robbed was on the south line towards London, a Glasgow London Express that they'd robbed. And basically by the, it was quite early in the morning. And so what they'd done is they'd simply shut the line down in order to work out where the robbers were. And they, they by this time knew that the train had been stopped in Leicestershire, I think it was, but it was going uh, south from Glasgow and it was the overnight um, uh, Royal Mail Express that they robbed, the great train robbery. And on that day, like Forrest Gump, I was sitting in a train near Carlisle. <laughs> <laughs> sitting there blissfully unaware of what's happening. Blissfully unaware. Uh, and, and in keeping with the theme of just unbelievable things happening, so from Ronnie Biggs to Beyonce, Beyonce's got a song called XO, and your son's in the video. Yeah, yeah, uh, the, wee, the wee man's in it. I mean, I'm very proud of him. I mean, he's already uh, achieving notoriety and celebrity at an early age. He's about kind of two-year-old, and uh, my, my wife had been uh, in uh, uh, one of these trendy media clubs in London uh, during the day for lunch. I think it was the hospital club or Groucho's or one of these places. And uh, a guy that he, she knew from uh, the uh, world of kind of movies, directors and whatever. Um, I'm just trying to think what his name was now. Um, uh, it's gone, Is it Jake Vire? Eh? Is it Jake Vire? It's gone out of... No, no, it's gone out of my mind. Who uh, His name's Hoods. They called him Hoods. H-U-D-Z was his name. And this Hoods guy had um, known Sharani from work. And he turned up and he said, oh, Sharani, this is your new boy. Beautiful, isn't he beautiful? And he was holding him. And a woman behind him said, hey, Hoods, let me, t- let me hold him. And Sharani looked up and it was Beyonce Knowles. So Beyonce's there. And she said, he's the most beautiful kid. 
why don't we get him in the video tomorrow? They, she was over doing the video with this uh, director and the video set was like an old fairground. And when they arrived the next day, uh, they took Jack, the kid, off uh, his mum onto the set and a young black girl was acting as his surrogate mother in the in the shot. And uh, they, they, they dressed him and from the costume department, they gave him, it's almost like I was in there influencing them, they gave him an Adidas top in navy blue and white, like an old Scotland top from the 78 World Cup. I mean, it couldn't have been better. And he, you see him in one minute, 22 seconds, bouncing on the girl's uh, arms and then held up in the air. And I thought, wow, how cool is that? You're in a Beyonce video at the age of two. And you know what? It could have gone horribly long. Could you imagine if they'd said, oh, why don't we just put him in an England talk? People like England talk. Nightmare territory. I'd be trying to invent a kind of spider software that would block the video on every outlet in the world. Aye, <laughs> I'd have just been saying, I'd be, I refuse to sign that waiver. It's no, it's out. not happening. <laughs> So to take it back to your educational career, that's sort of coming to, not to an end, but those initial studies anyway, and you're moving into the world of work. So what were your first steps in journalism? Was that working at the NME magazine? First steps in journalism, no, they were much more um, basic and and uh, uh, kind of just do it than that. Uh, the Northern Soul scene by 73, 74 was beginning to kind of build up a kind of clear identity and momentum of its own. And a very uh, famous Northern Soul DJ from Leeds, a guy called Pat Brady, uh, talked to me one night, an all-nighter. It was actually uh, the probably the first or second night of Wigan Casino. And he said, I'm going to start a, a, a fanzine called Talk of the North. And he said, you're bright. You've got a degree. Uh, you are, you're going to write for me. What do you want to write about? And I said, well, Pat, uh, I've got a typewriter at home why don't I just write it for you and send it? And he said, brilliant, brilliant. So I wrote this thing um, and it was an article. I can't even remember really the detail of it. And I wrote this article um, and it was for um, Talk of the North and I became a fanzine writer on, in one of the first Northern Soul fanzines back in 1973, 74. Here's the irony. Many, many, many years later, I was... Uh, in charge of the Paralympics at Channel 4. So we're looking there at uh, 2012, uh, and I was in charge of the biggest project that Channel 4 had ever done until that day. And I remember we had many of it, many teams within the meeting. I mean, one of these kind of meeting rooms where there had to be about 100 in the room, and we were in this theatre environment, and I was having to kind of lead the meeting. And uh, towards the break in the meeting, I saw a couple of girls, one of them saying, just tell them, just tell them. And I'm thinking, what, just tell them what? You know, you're thinking of your fly down or something like that, right? And this girl came up to me and said, oh, I think you know my dad. And I said, well, I might do. Who's your dad? And she said, Pat Brady. So the guy who's the DJ that had first commissioned me to write, his daughter, uh, uh, Gemma Brady, had gone uh, to university from her school in Leeds had gone down to Cambridge, had started at Channel 4 and was now working as an assistant on my team in Channel 4. So it all went full circle. I had never got her involved in the job. Now when people talk to her about it, they assume that somehow I had got her into Channel 4. She got there on her own merits. <laughs> Absolutely no nepotism. That's so funny how things like yeah. that go full circle. Has that happened many yeah. times? Is there any that, that stick out? 
Yeah, well, a lot of people that a lot of people that turn up in your life, and you think, how do I know that name? How do I know you? Have I met you before? And you kind of find people that you least expect them to be doing what they're doing. And I quite like that in life. I don't like when people always follow in the footsteps of their father or follow in the footsteps of their family. It's great when someone says they're a vet but their dad was a TV presenter or, you know, and they've just gone and done what makes them happy in life. So, I mean, she's a very, very gifted media worker now and does very well in her life. She's a fantastic marathon runner, something, you know, when Pat and I were growing up, a marathon meant doing an all-nighter, doing lots of amphetamines, going an all-beer <laughs> the next day. That was a marathon, not going to Berlin and run running 26 miles, you know. Change days. You went on to work at the NME. You must have met a lot of people. Actually, I feel as if there's a story that sticks out in my head. Was it James Brown that made you miss Scotland playing England? Yes, I. There was two James Browns at the time. There was James Brown, who was a colleague of mine at the NME. He was a writer from, from Leeds. And then, of course, the most famous James Brown of all time, James Brown, who was the uh, great uh, funketeer and probably one of the greatest kind of African-American performers of of all time. And uh, he's not someone I particularly like. I I don't think he's a great or very nice man. But I I did, uh, I I was offered an interview with him and this would have been in the uh, early 80s. And... uh, what happened then was that I was meant to turn up at the Hilton Hotel in Hyde Park, or the Dorchester it was in Hyde Park, and I was waiting in the uh, breakfast area, and he was meant to be coming down to have breakfast. His press officer had come, set up the, the breakfast meeting, and I'm sitting there waiting, and the interview was meant to start about 8.30. 8.30 doesn't show. 9.30, still no She's coming back. Well, I'm really sorry. He's on his way. He's on his way. 10 o'clock, no show. He, he fetches up at 12, midday. By this time, they've cleared all the breakfast stuff away. I'm through in this lounge area in the hotel, 12 o'clock, and burning a hole in my pocket was a Scotland-England ticket for Hamden and a flight ticket to get me from Heathrow to Glasgow to go and see Scotland play in England. In a game, incidentally, that we won one nothing. Uh, Richard Goff scored the winner, so I think we won the Rouse Cup, I think it was called at the time. And I always blame James Brown for denying me my historical rights to watch Scotland pump in England. I would have been absolutely fuming at that. I suppose back then, would journalists have held more power? Would you have had more access, more influence back then? I, I think that James Brown at this time was, he, he'd already reached kind of legend status. He wasn't, he wasn't kind of someone that would have been known by every single person the way that, say, John Lennon might or somebody uh, of that ilk, but he was certainly world famous. And I think he'd also done so many interviews, he was just kind of like, whatever, I'll just do what I want. And if the guy p- blows the interview and walks off, who cares? You know, I think it was very much that, you know. Mm. Is there anybody for that time period that sticks out as, you know, being really exciting for you to meet or like a notable experience absolutely hundreds uh you know uh, janet jackson janet jackson i met janet jackson in la and oh what a wonderful uh woman she was um really smart clever charismatic she had an album coming out big big uh, album at the time kind of boogie dance music album and uh she she was uh, driving, I think she could only have been about 18 or 19 at the time. And uh, 
I, she said, oh, what, what do you know about the area? I said, well, I'm I'm staying at, and I told her the hotel I was staying at, and she said to me, oh, I'll drive you back there. She said, it's not too far. And when we were driving, she said to me, hey, would you like to see Michael's place? And I'm like, you're right, I better believe it. So she took me up past <laughs> wow. Neverland, but you couldn't get in, and he wasn't around apparently. Um, so I never got a chance to meet him in the infamous Neverland. But to be driven about with his sister wasn't too bad. So I, I had a great time meeting her. But you know, one of the things that I do, you maybe not remember her, but there was a, a young African-American uh a club singer called Evelyn Champagne King, Evelyn King. Now, Evelyn King had a record out at the time just simply called Shame. Um, and this record, um, this record was just unbelievably good. Uh, probably one of the top selling kind of R&B records of the time. And she was at the height of her game. She was extremely beautiful young woman. And I was taken to interview her in this luxury, luxury suite of a hotel again over in Los Angeles that was in the top floor and what they'd done is they'd hired the two suites right next to each other one for Evelyn and one for the journalists to congregate in and it was my turn to go through the joining doors to go in and interview her and I thought I'll just go and have a pee and wash my hands so it goes in for a pee I'm washing my hands and the jet of water just splashed right into the basin all over the front of these uh, sort of trousers I was wearing, and it just looked like I'd pissed myself. And I had to go through the door. There was nothing, nothing I could do. And I just went in and I said, Evelyn, before we start, can I, can I just explain that the, the water flow in there splashed all over me, and it just looks like I've wet myself. I'm really, really sorry. And she just burst out laughing and had a laugh. And it kind of broke the ice a little bit because uh, after that, we could joke about embarrassing things you've done and most embarrassing moment of your life. I got a really good interview out of her as well. And also out of Chaka Khan. Chaka Khan said to me, this is in London. I was in a hotel with Chaka Khan. She said to me, God, she said, oh, she says, I'm feeling... Oh, leave it with me. She says, I'll be right back. She went into the toilet in the hotel, came back, and she said, hey, I don't suppose you have anything. My periods have just come on. And I'm like, uh, no, but I can go and maybe help get something downstairs. And the, then she said, oh, don't worry, I'll ring one of the girls. She rang her mate. Her mate came in, handed her her tampons, and she came back. And she said, oh, I, I, I feel brilliant now. Maybe we should talk about menstruation. And that was her opening line in the interview. Yeah, really good. Chaka Khan, what a queen she is. <laughs> is that is that just like a detachment for reality to expect that, that a guy would just happen to have spare tampons on him? It's quite unusual. I think, I think it probably was. Although, uh, you know, uh, who knows in those right-on days, because um, she had been actually a young member of the Black Panthers when she was 16 in Chicago, and I think she'd moved in very, very cool right. and hip and probably right-on circles. So who knows what her expectations were. You you were also at one point a producer and owner, a joint owner of the big star, uh, you and Don Coots, a production company in Glasgow. Yeah. Was was that like the prelude to you going to Channel 4? Yes, yes. I, I'd, I'd been at the NME and The Face. And if I'm honest, Sean, one of the things that had always been kind of ticking away in my mind was that I was hoping to move back up the road to go to Scotland. And uh, Don, who I knew quite well from... Uh, various different kind of things that we'd done as partners. And he'd interviewed me a lot when I was at the NME for projects he was doing for Channel 4. 
he came into me one day at Channel 4 and he said to me, you know what, I've got an idea. I want to set up an independent production company. Now, I'm like, what was one of them? And he says, well, just think of it as an indie label, like in music and soul music or uh, dance music, but it's actually to make shows, TV shows. And he said, um, and I know the commissioners at Channel 4, they like me, they want me to be independent and leave the BBC where he was at the time working. And I said, well, why not? And I had no idea really what an independent production company was. Uh, And I I joined them and eventually moved back to Glasgow. I I was not from Glasgow, as you know, uh, but I got a flat in Deniston in Glasgow uh, and I've lived there in some form or another ever since. So basically... um, I left and we started, I left NME and we started pitching these ideas to Channel 4 and we got a good few of them away and within two years we'd built Big Star into being the biggest independent production production company in Scotland where regularly we had a turnover of two or three million pounds which at the time was colossal for for um, Scotland and uh, I became active within the Producers Association which is called PACT, it still exists now and um, at one of the annual PAC meetings, the head of um, programs at Channel 4 said, Stuart, have you ever thought of coming into Channel 4 and working with us as a commissioner? And I kind of thought about it and thought, that sounds a great job, but it would mean moving back to London again. And he said, no, no, we, we would work in a way where you could come back to Scotland and be based in the London office, but travel extensively and uh, keep your flat in London in Glasgow. So I did all of that and I ended up having a, a really good time and I, I just Channel 4 became my home. I loved working there as an organisation, a great place to mm. work and I was hugely privileged to to have worked there. Before we do go on to Channel 4, like, what was Glasgow like back then? Because, you know, this is circa 1990, Glasgow's European city of culture, things are changing, you know, the city's is modernising. Yeah. You know, what type of place was it to be? Well, I, I've always believed that Glasgow is one of the the one of the great kind of uh, European cities. And I suppose the biggest change of all was was culture itself was changing. If you looked over at um, Edinburgh, Edinburgh already had this remarkable reputation as being an international festival city with uh, all the kind of uh, fine festivals and great kind of buildings. And Glasgow was always seen as the slightly kind of poorer cousin. Um, But what Glasgow had, which Edinburgh uh, didn't have to such an extent was this kind of street culture, a kind of more urban, uh, uh, ordinary kind of uh, grassroots culture that was going on. Uh, great theatre was beginning to emerge. It was a big, big, always has been a big centre for style and fashion and, and look. There was a kind of, I suppose, the term gallusness is the term that you would use about Glasgow that kind of gave it this kind of distinctiveness. And so you know, like other cities in Europe that were beginning to emerge at that time, you know, among them Berlin and Barcelona and Glasgow and uh, other cities, um, you started to kind of realise that culture wasn't always about the capital city. It wasn't always about the place that had the greatest kind of monuments or the greatest kind of historic architecture. And, and you know, Glasgow started to become a very, very lively city to live in, a brilliant city to live in at the time. And because I, I don't drive, and because I didn't drive, um, I had friends that, you know, uh, 
uh, would come and pick me up if they lived in, uh, let's say I had a friend actually that lived near uh, Port Glasgow in Greenock, and if we were driving up to see St Johnson, he would just want to come off the motorway, pick me up, get back on the motorway again. And so Deniston became a place that I was really kind of comfortable with. It felt kind of underground. It felt uh, really kind of easy for the city centre. I could walk home if I was pissed and there was no taxis. You know, there was nothing about Denison that I didn't like and so it's become my second home. It'll never be Lethem because Lethem's where I grew up but Denison's uh, the other second big place in my life. But the interesting thing about the culture of that time is that you were starting to notice in Glasgow a kind of culture. They use the term pop-up now, but at that time that term wasn't in regular use. But it was shops that might have been only open for a year or bands that were kind of recording uh, and they were significant for you know, uh, for a few years. And the Glasgow music scene had really, really taken off. And the art school was probably at its its height at that time. And so almost everything about Glasgow in some form, fashion, the arts, independent pop music, the postcard scene, the kind of indie music scene, the club scene. Glasgow was a lively, lively city, one of the great cities to live in. Yeah, I feel like, as you're saying, before Glasgow was sort of modernising and developing, it was more, let's just say, I don't want to insult my city here, grungy, let's say, just not so much going on or there's not as much there. And I feel that for that one, there is nothing. People then create their own culture if it's not already pre-existing. So it's probably the best thing that could have happened because if you look at, as you say, music, the arts and everything that's come out of the city of Glasgow, it's renowned the world over for for being this creative hotbed. Yeah, I I mean, you know, you can never, you can't think of any modern popular cultural form where there isn't somebody from Glasgow or some movement or some phenomenon that Glasgow hasn't contributed to or had outstanding people in. I mean, I I know this sounds like a really kind of very different one of it, but I love love sitting listening to... uh, Amy McDonald. Now, Amy and I probably got very different musical tastes, clearly of a different generation. Uh, but because Amy uh, fell in love with Richard Foster, the St. Johnson player, he's now at Ross County, um, she would come to the Saints games and I'd often see her and we'd kind of chat away. And, and one of the things I really loved about her was how big she is in Germany. You forget that there are Scottish acts who are well-known at home, but who are superstars somewhere else. And, you know, this is a a, a very odd thing, but if you get guys like um, the the German football manager is a huge Amy... you've took the words out of my mouth. (laughs) Yeah, he's a huge Amy McDonald fan, you know, and actually will go to huge lengths to see her in concert and, you know, get the backstage pass and all of that stuff. And you're thinking, Joachim Lowe is one of the most famous football managers in the world and his superstar is Amy McDonald. You know, it's great, you know. I know, that's hilarious. Uh, I even hear her music in in Spain quite a lot, which is funny. Uh, And I think we sometimes forget that the world does exist outside of Scotland as well. There are other uh, things happening. And, you know, she, she she tells a story. It's a story I love because it just kind of almost sums up Scotland for me. It, she, she was over, I think, actually in uh, France or Belgium and uh, Germany were playing a game. And so she'd said, Joachim Lowe had said to her, would you like to come and see the game? You know, let's imagine it's Germany versus Poland in, uh, you know, I don't know, in, in um, whether it be in Munich or somewhere. And he said, I'll send a limousine for you. 
So it coincides with Amy's pals are over at the concert that she's doing in France. And she says to the girls, hey, fancy a limo and we'll go and see Germany. We've got VIP tickets and he's sending us a limo there and back to get us to the game. They're all right. We'll take some of that and whatever. And then, so they go to the game. They're in the VIP lounge. It's fucking wall-to-wall bevy everywhere they went. <laughs> food and bevy. And she said the most humiliating thing about coming back <laughs> on their way back after the game was stopping the limo in this lay-by and asking the chauffeur to stop so the girls from Glasgow could go and spew out the back <laughs> the back of the limo, and she says, you, "You know, you're looking out the limo, and they're all there with the with the the uh, the micro mini up around their arse doing a piss in the side of the street." <laughs> And there's a side of you just thinking, oh, uh, they would have to get the limo, but none of them could stop themselves getting pissed because it was free, you know. And it just makes me laugh that it's so funny. Uh, but uh, Yoka, all Yoakum Low knows they had a great night. Hi, <laughs> you could take the girls out of Scotland. Uh, so Channel 4, I'm keen to find out more about your role there. So you were a commissioner. Were you basically involved in commissioning shows, like reviewing pitches, deciding what goes on air, you know, that kind of thing? Yes, that was that was the, that was the daily job, yeah. You had to kind of assess shows, look at them, talk to the producers, develop them, uh, send them back to reshape them. Usually you would go to, firstly, a taster, just to give you a flavour of the show, then a pilot, and then eventually... Uh, the show would go on live and then it would go on an extended run if it was successful. So, you know, gone through all of that, uh, all through all through my career. So commissioned or acquired or been part of the editorial development of numerous shows, numerous shows, you know. Is there anybody that sticks out in your mind that was told, no, it's not happening, and if it on to do well elsewhere? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you look, the thing about it is you're knocking back shows sometimes, sometimes in a meeting, you get 12 shows pitched at you and you knock back 12, 10 of them. Now, who knows whether in those 10 you're saying, like, I've just killed the Beatles or whatever, because you focus on the two you're doing, not the 10 you're not doing, you know. Um, so, yeah, almost certainly that would be the case. Um, I, I remember saying to one of my team when the comedy department, I just said, I'm not sure, I'm not sure Graham Norton's ever really going to make it. And I passed on Graham Norton several times. I mean, he's a nice enough guy, but I kind of felt that maybe the kind of camp appeal that he had uh, would have been too kind of predictable for Channel 4. You know, it's kind of what you imagine Channel 4 doing. Uh, So, yeah, passed on on Graham Norton uh, uh, two or three occasions. But, yeah, there's been endless uh, numbers of things that I've kind of not commissioned or not quite got at the time. Lots of things that, for financial reasons, I've had to end. I mean, I get... To this day, I still get trolled on Twitter by one of my former um, colleagues uh, who I had to, in his budget round, saying, we can't afford to do Glastonbury anymore. Let's kill Glastonbury. At the time, uh, the BBC had given, we'd got it from the BBC and the BBC were bidding to get it back and they were bidding high and high and high and we weren't willing to go high enough. And to be honest, you can't always be certain that pop music will rate on television. So we so we got rid of Glastonbury. But to this day, the guy, every single year that Glastonbury's starting, or uh, there's a run on the tickets, fortunately this year, because it's been cancelled, they'll get a year off. But it usually comes saying, I know some clown that didn't think it works. And, you know, he's going back to a period of time, you know, uh, when we didn't have eight channels and we couldn't just put out every act from 
you know, beginning to end. So he's kind of comparing uh, apples with oranges. But yeah, I, I, I decommissioned Glastonbury. You know, I've made numerous uh, errors of judgment, uh, which were right at the time for the circumstances. Because, you know, when you're asked the question, what have you killed or what have you commissioned? Everything's taken out of context the way we're talking now. But everything decision you take at the time is in a context. It, you know, you might turn around and say, a production's coming in uh, and they're bidding for uh, 20 shows that have done showreels for them. They've spent a lot of money and they want you to look at them and you look at them, but they're all 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock shows in terms of their tone, in terms of their post-watershed kind of feel, and you're maybe looking for shows for 8 o'clock. And these shows don't work, so you turn them down. That doesn't mean they're bad shows. just means that they don't work in the context of what you're commissioning at that time. So I did that every single day of my life for 20 years. Yeah, you did leave in 2015. Would you have stayed on um, if Glasgow had had gotten won the bid for the new HQ? Was it was it Bristol that that actually got it? Where where is it? Well, Glasgow as well. Yeah, I I I was the chairman of Glasgow's bid, so it was Glasgow, Bristol, and Leeds, the three that got it. All right, so Glasgow did get an office then, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, okay, I've got that wrong. Yeah, their offices. The the new offices are in Montrose Street at the back of. Uh, the back of George Square, uh, right next to a very, very trendy kind of, uh, uh, right. a kind of like a sort of um, trendy kind of casual designer store on Montrose Street. It's called the Garment Factory, so they're based in there in Glasgow. Right, right, okay. I've got, I've got totally mixed up there. I thought it was the three or four cities that were bidding to become the HQ for Channel Four for the UK, and that Glasgow lost out. Right, so there is an office. What what is it they they'll actually be doing from there? Uh, basically, it's a, it's a, a commissioning centre for popular factual and factual entertainment, um, and uh, with a presence of other genres. But but that's a kind of centre of excellence. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Glasgow, Bristol, and Leeds were the winners. Yeah. Now, we're not finished speaking about your career, but one question I did want to ask is, now you started out, let's go all the way back again, with an interest in Northern Seoul. You moved to Hull, you studied drama and English at university. You've gone on to work at the NME, which leads you to Channel 4. You had your own very successful company in between. Has your professional pathway, let's say up to that point in 2015, has that been in like accordance with your general ambitions? Did they diverge along the way? Or have, have you just taken opportunities as they've come and then you've, you know, sort of written your story in, in retrospect? So uh, basically there was no game plan, if that's what you mean. I didn't sit down and say, I want to commission at Channel 4. Um, those things were circumstantial and they happened and they evolved. Uh, but often what happens in uh, career history is there's, there is a kind of serendipity of things that happen and you didn't expect them to happen. But more often than not, you put yourself in a position where things can happen for you. So, for example, um, if you take uh, if you take uh, when I was at the NME, the NME were all often asked if there was people that could go on uh, BBC Two art shows or could go on Channel Four, the Tube, or shows like that, and uh, they often asked the staff and various members of the staff and ch- and. Um, 
NME had quite a lot of people that were very, very good writers, but often quite shy individuals. They were better in kind of uh, bedroom kind of indie guys that would kind of good writers, but not actually necessarily good as media performers. There were other people who just simply didn't want to be on the telly. Uh, and often I would get asked. And so uh, as a consequence of being at, at um, the NME, I got asked to be on a lot of programs talking about whatever the controversy was, censorship in music or whatever the subject was. And I just became a fairly kind of uh, competent media performer. So the BBC came to me a lot, asked me to present shows, asked me to appear on things. And, you know, often what happens is an opportunity emerges because of what you're already doing and what you're doing well, and so uh, you spin off from that. And so that's kind of how it emerged. There was never a day when I sat down and mapped out a career path. And it's not something I personally believe in. Everybody's got their, everybody's got their own choices. But I know people, I actually met a couple of people at, at Channel 4 that would say things like, if I'm not the chief executive of Channel 4 be- before I'm 30, I'll have failed. And you feel like saying to them, well, actually, you're failing because it's not going to happen. So you failed. You know what I mean? Uh, it's just a ridiculous thing to set those uh, ambitions. And if I'm not a millionaire by the time I'm 30, I'll have failed. And you feel like saying, well, would you? Had you, pe- had you pegged your happiness and your achievement to money? You probably failed the moment you had that thought. Do you know what I mean? So I think that... Uh, you have to peg your ambitions to experiences, not just on kind of hierarchies. I completely agree. You know, if you're pursuing something purely for the end goal or the title or the prestige or, or the money, or the money, then yeah. you're unlikely to stick at it or do well because there's no passion or love for what what you're doing and your work is probably going to be substandard. And it's strange yeah. as well because if you pigeonhole yourself or you limit yourself and decide upon only one or two acceptable outcomes and you've got this tunnel vision which means you'll just miss any golden opportunities that may present themselves and they're not always glaringly obvious at the time are they uh we have to talk about off the ball yeah so for anybody who isn't aware off the ball is the radio show that that you and tam county presented every week since 1994 and you're celebrating your 26th year this year where does that longevity come from because society and broadcasting have both evolved almost immeasurably since your first show is it the simplicity that's given it such a long lifespan or is it the consistency of the show every week i think uh, i think the simplicity uh it would be number one for me uh off the balls off the balls really a kind of um hybrid show it's about football at least at one level, uh, but it's more importantly about Scottish life and experience. And what we've done is we've kind of softly internally formatted it um, so that it can kind of talk about usually three or four subjects a week that are kind of in the air. Um, And so, for example, if we were, let's imagine next week that Celtic, that UEFA decided that they were going to endorse, I think they're going to endorse, that the season ends. I know that the season has ended already in Belgium and in uh, Netherlands, so it's going to be the case, I think, that Scotland will follow suit. If Celtic are declared the title winners, Rangers fans will immediately say, it's tainted. You never finish the season, right? So the word tainted will become a key word in the discourse of Scottish fans' football. We, We only just need to say, they're one word tainted, yeah. and 
everybody can talk about whether it was a stain in their in their uh, coat one night when they were going out. I'd probably go down the route of uh, Tainted Love by Gloria Jones, the great Northern Soul anthem. You know, you go off in your various uh, avenues. But at the heart of it is that one word which Scottish football has colonised for that period of time. So we could talk about things like that forever. Uh, And in a way that's kind of sometimes, um, you know, because we don't support either Celtic or Rangers, we can laugh at their hypocrisies and their their, uh, misbehaviours and everything, you know. Oh, the hypocrisy at times is, is unbelievable. And I say that as a Celtic supporter, I'm well aware of it. What I find hilarious about off the ball and its inception is that a picture, you know, two producers sitting down in Queen Margaret Drive in the BBC's then HQ, circa 1992-93, brainstorming and some show ideas. And one says, do you know who's really good at laughing at themselves and taking a joke? Scottish football fans, like, <laughs> where does that idea come from? Because, <laughs> I know. you know, it's the touchiest, most sensitive group in the country. The, the simple answer to that was the fanzine movement. At that time, uh, football fans across the whole of the UK were writing these various fanzines. I'd been involved in Northern Soul fanzines, but the football fanzines became a huge, huge phenomenon. And as soon as they became a phenomenon, uh, the, 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 kind of the, the heat was on to discover either a TV show or, in our case, a radio show that had some of the sensibilities of the fanzine movement. Uh, being kind of unofficial, being a little bit kind of, you know, uh, ribald with subject matter, being anti the, the, the kind of the, the beaks that run the game by challenging authority within the game. All of these things you can still see within Off the Ball so many, um, so many years on. But that's what triggered it more than kind of believing that they could sit down and forge mm. a show. And the show emerged and... Uh, when I got involved in the show, I, 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 one of the things one of the things I'm good at, uh, and, and actually, interestingly enough, Tam Cowan's very good at it as well, is we're very good at shaping um, formats or devices or little kind of things that will recur, uh, what they call on the internet memes. But we've got a lot of memes in the show that recur week in, week out, or terms and whatever. Um, so one, for example, that Tam keeps saying, every time he remembers where he was when something happened, he'll say, it was a JFK moment. A JFK, a JFK moment, moment. Right. And you're thinking, no, the President of the United States was shot in a JFK moment. <laughs> Not quite aye, the same aye. as you remembering the day that Motherwell signed Brian Martin or something like that. But it's become a kind of meme within the show, you know, and we just keep then playing to it, you know. I absolutely love Off the Ball. I've been listening to it, I suppose, my whole life. My grandpa uh, would always and does always have it on. Yeah. Uh, but I've noticed a few of those wee sort of meme things as well. Like another one which is always said is a rake of something. Like it was a, I'm st- I, I suppose I do know what it means, but for quite a while I wasn't actually sure. I take it you just really enjoy doing the show because you've been busy throughout your entire career. You've got a pretty full schedule, yet you've you've always done yeah, the show. Yeah. yeah, we're busy and it's kind of like, it's a way of you re-engaging with your kind of, uh, the real parts of your life. So the rake thing comes from the fact that that's the Perth word for a lot of. And because I keep saying it, he picked up on it and now he uses it, right? Um, so basically, and uh, uh, we had a debate once about how many rakes in a hound, right? Uh, because another Perth word for a lot of is a hound. Oh, we turned up and there was a, 
hound a bevy in the corner, and you're thinking, what was a rake, a crates a bevy, or a hound of them? And we got discussing whether a, a rake was worth more than a hound, and how many hounds were in a rake. And it's that sort of mad, surreal shit that you can get away with and off the ball. It's good fun. Uh, it's, it's daft patter, but it's it's great. I hope it continues yeah. for, for a long time. Uh, me too. Before we talk about the big light, so you're writing for the National, Scotland's pro-independence newspaper. Yes. And uh, for the big issue. So that gives me the impression that you use your profile and influence conscientiously because I imagine you'll be approached to do lots of things like that. What do you hope to achieve from from both of those things? Well, um, I was approached by Richard Walker and uh, the uh, Callum Baird, the editor at the National, uh, when they were launching a new Sunday edition with seven days, their Sunday pullout. And uh, they said, would I be interested in doing uh, something for them in the media? Now, they knew that I was a yes supporter in the independence campaign of uh, the past, and they knew that I was quite committed to the cause of Scottish self-governance. And so they were also wanting to kind of bring people to the paper that would if you like, lift its profile, lift its kind of um, associations. And I was more than happy to do it. And I've been writing since uh, day one of that new Sunday edition. And I'm kind of proud of, of, of what I've done. Not every column is uh, brilliant, but some of them are and some are not. Um, but I'm very proud of the quality of them. And look, there's no point in me turning around and pretending that I want to write for a newspaper. I've written for hundreds of newspapers, the best, the Guardian, the Observer, the NME. So I'm not wandering about thinking, oh, I, I need a bit of endorsement. I need uh, I need an Edinburgh newspaper to love me. I don't, you know, uh, I kind of am happy what I'm doing. And I'm a great believer in independence and self-governance for Scotland. And that's what I'm going to work on, uh, certainly for the next part of my life in the belief that it's there and it's there for Scotland to take and Scotland needs to stand up and say time to stand on our own two feet and uh, we'll make mistakes but by God there's an awful lot of mistakes mistakes being made on our behalf by other nations currently. Yeah I'm in complete agreement with you there. You've obviously worked at the BBC for such a long time and you're clearly very opinionated and a strong personality and obviously there are editorial constraints and guidelines at the BBC. Is it tough for you to walk the line on that? Do you ever find that you have to restrain yourself at times so as not to be at odds with those guidelines? Yeah, well, of course you have to kind of juggle with it. But if you take off the ball, off the ball is uh, not a product of the news and current affairs director at the BBC. So it's under less, uh, less direct uh, influence to provide those uh, terms that people love quoting like balance and objectivity and all of those uh, because they, they th- those terms have been framed largely for news and current affairs. Elsewhere in the BBC guidelines, there's a great emphasis placed on diversity of opinion, which is a, a different way of saying, you know, uh, allow a range of opinions to flourish and off the ball has certainly got a diversity opinion. Um, if anything, I think that uh, Tam and I being a St. Johnson and a Motherwell fan allows us to kind of skate through some of the big political issues in Scottish football, which tend, fairly or not, to end up being about Rangers and Celtic. Uh, Even when we're doing things like currently, uh, as we're in lockdown with coronavirus and there's a threat to the league ending um, prematurely, uh, that is being framed very much as a dispute between Rangers and Celtic. When in actual fact, it it really isn't. But that's the way in which it's framed. 
in part because it sells newspapers to cultivate that kind of um, dispute going between those two clubs. Uh, but off the ball doesn't need either of those clubs um, for its survival or for its success. So we'll cut the path we want to cut. Um, and I think that's the best way of, of, of thinking about it. While we're on the subject to the BBC, what was the name of the show that you previously did with Eamon O'Neill, which is now part of the Big Light Network? It was called. It was called uh, John Beattie. It was called at the time the Media Show, and it was within John Beattie's uh, program. And uh, on the was it a Thursday? Was it yeah Thursday on BBC Scotland at lunchtime? Yeah, yeah. So what happened? I take it they just decided to to discontinue the show then. Uh, well, basically, yeah, they were changing the schedules and they discontinued that slot. The slot had existed actually for quite some years before that, before Eamon joined, uh, I used to do it with uh, with other people as well. Um, and uh, so it's got a much longer history than people imagine uh, because it was an item within a programme. And uh, it, it, in fact, actually, I, I think I started it before I left Channel 4. Um, and, uh, you know, Again, it was commentary on the media of, of the week and how uh, the, the week's news stories were being mediated. And they wanted to change the running order of the entire afternoon, uh, changing the schedule slot, changing what went where, what they call in television the furniture. They wanted to move the furniture around. And we were part of the furniture that was being moved. Um, and so they discontinued that slot. Now, the different ways you can interpret that. You just think, well, hey, Stuart, you've done it a hundred times at Channel Four. Now it's happening to you. Move on, right? So I, I'm quite relaxed about it because every time you get moved on, there's a new opportunity emerges. Or alternative, you can say maybe there's part of BBC Scotland that are a bit kind of sceptical about where the show was going. You had two very, very, very forthright and very kind of self-confident. Um, contributors, Eamon O'Neill, who's a professor in uh, investigative journalism, and myself, neither of us were shy to give our opinions. And you probably wouldn't have needed to be uh, an A1 forensic um, detective to work out that both of us were probably going to come down in favour of Scottish self-government. And I think that's something that for the BBC remains a a troubling and, and difficult concept. And so in the end, they probably thought, well, let that one go because it will run the risk of not getting us in trouble. I think that was that would have been in the background. They say not, but, you know, I'm not a naive man. So the show is in existence as talk media on the Big Light, Scotland's podcast network. Right. And it can be found on Apple, Spotify and everywhere you listen to podcasts for anybody who wants to tune in. How has it been for you now that you've got more control and, and less restriction as you previously did? Uh, uh, do you know what? I think I'm, I'm really enjoying it because it's a new challenge. As you say, it's a different form of media and broadcasting. It's a podcast and it's uh, uh, being carried in a very different way from uh, an insert in a BBC uh, news programme. We're still learning about when's the right per- time to Uh, release it, what's the right length. We're still working on those elements to it, but I'm fairly confident that it's doing quite well so far. Um, And, you know, back working with uh, Janice Forsyth, who I've worked with over numerous years on different projects, and um, uh, Fiona White, who's the other co-owner of The Big Light, and uh, Fiona I've known over decades, uh, going back to TV production. Um, so there are two women who have got ambition, who've got a great track record in their own personal lives, and uh, it's just good working with them. I'm, 
really, really excited to be doing it. And it's another thing. It's another thing. You're, it's not, you're not just doing the same old, same old. Even although the uh, texture of the show may have similarities, it's a very different beast. Definitely a good thing to keep things fresh. As we round up, the final thing that I would like to ask you is, to some people you might be a broadcaster or a general media figure. Some might see you as a Scottish football commentator in the socio-political sense. Others might know you solely as an author, prominent figure in the soul music scene. How would you describe yourself? How do you personally see yourself? Uh, you know what? Um, there's probably a hell of a lot of people that think I'm an A1 wanker. There'll be thinking people thinking that I'm a big mouth. There'll be people thinking that I'm an absolute kind of howling Scottish nationalist. There'll be all of these kinds of different views. But I like to just take it right back to where I came from and what I am, and that's that I've learned an awful lot in life. I'm a Scottish guy from a housing scheme in Scotland, and I've never allowed that to define me or hold me back. I think it was one of the greatest, uh, uh, one of the greatest kind of virtues in my life, and one of the greatest honours in my life to have the education and the upbringing I've had. And uh, I, I'm just me, and I'll do what I want to do, and I hope to do it well. And if people don't like it, well, don't listen. You heard the man. If you don't like it, fuck off. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Stuart, this has been brilliant. Thanks so much for your time. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, Absolutely, Sean. And best of luck with Blethered and all who's sailing (laughs) her. Thanks a lot, Stuart. And thank you for listening. Join me again next time for another interview on Blethered on the Big Light. From the Big Light Studio.